Hello and welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining. It's August 26th as I'm recording this. I'm David Widmar, co-founder and managing partner of Agricultural Economic Insights and, of course, AEI Premium. This week, a couple of great articles I wanted to summarize and just get you thinking about over the weekend, but also encourage you to go read the rest of the articles and really dive deep into the conversations that we were having with those articles. And so the first one I want to mention is Jeff Young's work on the yield project and always trying to provide us some insights. And one of the things that he shared this week is an update of the Westcott Jewison model. And so that's a model that the USDA built really after the drought of 2012. And the goal from that, at least in my mind, maybe the historians at the USDA would in, in Westcott and Jewison themselves might have a different story. But in my mind, I see this as a model where the USDA was trying to say, how can we learn a little bit about the crop throughout the growing season so we can make some course adjustments to the yield estimates, particularly for the Wazoo report, as we go through the corn season. So the variables that this model that the USDA updates and tracks and monitors throughout the growing season are planting progress as of the middle of May, the June precipitation, July precipitation, but also July temperatures. And these are, of course, for a wide area of the United States, the Corn Belt region. So it's an odd data. It's an odd variable. And there's a lot of error in this model, but you know, all models are wrong. Some of them are useful. And today, I don't want to focus necessarily on the output of the model of the results. You can see that in the article if you dive in. But what I want to focus on is what we can learn, what the useful part of this model is. In general, it wasn't the July rainfall. It wasn't the July temperatures that were really the yield hit. In fact, if anything, the July was the least burdensome or the least destructive for corn yields, particularly. It was the June precipitation, as we've noted before, that really had a big, big hit on the yield potential. Again, this is using history to inform our thinking about how current conditions in 2022 could have impacted the, the potential size of the 2022 crop. So we're not going out there saying this is what the number is going to be, but we're trying to help you think about the range of possible outcomes and which factors have been the most consequential. Also mid-May planting progress. So that pulled about five bushel out of the yield potential compared to the June precipitation shortfall, which might've been somewhere around 15 bushel. And then the July variables, temperature and rainfall collectively pulled out less than two and a half. So it was really that dryness that we saw in June that was in the 10th percentile that was really problematic for that corn crop. So we'll see how that plays out. And again, think of this as wherever this final crop sort of comes in or comes in at, it was probably that June precipitation that historic data and historic relationships to the yield would suggest was the most consequential for that crop. What are the implications for soybeans? Well, Jeff didn't cover this, but the July and August temperatures and rainfall are the variables used for soybeans. So first takeaway is still early in the growing season for soybeans. As of now, uh, it's getting pretty in. We'll get the final data for August and the first part of September. So we're just closing out that window for soybean yield potential on these models. But that June variable isn't in there. That May variable for planting progress isn't in the soybean model. And so if August turns out to be favorable again, soybeans might be able to have escaped the worst of the 
yield damage destruction hit that maybe corn had faced. The other article that I put together this week, kind of a big one, you know, six uh, figures, two charts and four maps, really stepping back and spending some time thinking about farmland values and the change. And one of the big takeaways I saw from this is historically, we see a lot of years somewhere around 55% of the time, farmland values change pretty small, less than 5% on an annual basis. Several years, especially from 2014, excuse me, 2015 to 2020, there was basically no change in expectations. And then there are years, and again, these are the USDA farm cropland values across the whole US national average, where they jump a lot. They jump 14% across the whole country. In 2022, they're up about 7% from in 2021. There are these periods where farmland values change a lot in a very short period of time, and we change a lot to the upside in the last couple of decades, at least. And so we've seen a lot of change, and really, we're in one of those phases of a lot of change. And so it's always helpful to step back and think about where those changes are playing out, because intuitively, we know that not every crop, not every region, not every state has seen as big of an upswing. So what's sort of going on here? Well, we looked at the state level year over year changes. And what you can see is that the biggest changes going to 2022 were in Kansas, where farmland values were up 25%, also Nebraska up 21%. The Delta region, actually, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, they saw farmland values increase much, much less, somewhere around the 6 to 7%. These are still big annual changes at the state level. But recognizing that not all crops, not all regions, not all farms and farm entities, not all areas were impacted the same. Skip down to the one of the more interesting charts in my mind. We stepped back and said, how are values changed really over the last 12 years? We went back to 2010. 2010 was sort of before that big boom we saw, 11, 12, and 13. And the first piece that you notice is that there are regional differences, really strong regional difference. The Northern Plains, the Western Corn Belt. Why these regions? Well, these are the regions that can really swing production to corn or to soybeans, whichever is more profitable. And especially in the Great Plains, where they might have been bringing this out of wheat production or other small grains. Second thing to keep in mind is 100% change would be a doubling of farmland values. And North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Minnesota, Iowa, and Idaho all saw values of 100% or larger. So, you know, I guess there's six out of the seven that saw farmland values double in the last 12 years. We're in these continuous northern Great Plains, western Corn Belt states. Where do the farmland values not change very much? Well, the southwest, we see in Arizona, New Mexico, very, very small changes. In fact, for those two states in particular, the changes from 2021 to 2022 were probably most of all their gains over the last 12 years. And in fact, I think, you know, if you're really dying in that New Mexico data, there were some years where it trended lower and then came up. So it's barely 2% up uh, over much bigger year over year changes than what we saw over the last 12 years. I mean, it started from a lower point in 2021. The other region that has small changes were the Southeast, extreme Southeast. So South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. Again, different commodities, different factors. Why is this important? Well, it's just important to stop and think a little bit about your expectations of farmland. So the farmland boom isn't uniform. What a farmland boom in values might mean to you or to me are vastly different. I think even within the Corn Belt itself, 
farmland values in, for example, Indiana cropland values increased 82% from 2010 to 2022, while in Iowa, they increased more than 110%. Those are big differences. And so when you think about the annualized rate of difference, Indiana increased at about 4.7% or Iowa was almost 6%. Those changes annualized can start to be a little bit more significant. And so just thinking about the implications for how you've experienced changes in farmland values in your region over the last 12, 15, 20 years, but also how your perceptions are heavily influenced by the, the backyard bias. Also, wow, just to pause and think about how much these farmland values have changed. You know, a 25% change in Kansas is a huge change year over year. A lot of big changes across the country. This is going to have sort of a wealth effect in agriculture, right? When all of a sudden the balance sheets start to show this additional equity that's in place. We'll see, of course, how this plays out. We're going to continue to write about this and we'll continue to dive into this as we continue to move forward. One other thing I want to mention here, if you go to the AEI.ag site, and of course we've had many references in our weekly emails, but one of the things I wanted to share is the Ag Interrupted podcast recently released its second episode, kind of an experimental podcast for us. And this one was about the PAL expedition. If you're not familiar with it, the PAL expedition was launched in 1869. On August 13th, the team led by John Wesley Powell reached the foot of the Grand King and they entered the Grand Canyon. And he came back with a lot of lessons for that region that he thought about. One of them was how we draw state boundaries and the implications of how we draw those state boundaries. And I think just one of the big takeaways from that project, from that episode, is some of these can be very challenging to think about, and there's no right or wrong answer. They're kind of wicked problems. There's no right, there's a lot of wrong ways to do it, but there's not necessarily a clear right way to do it. And how the West has this legacy of water conflict. The Powell Expedition noted this is a water deficit area. It's an area that's going to have a lot of challenges with water for its existence. And he mentioned, if we don't get this right, when we're making state boundaries, it could really create this legacy of conflict. And as we've seen, the Colorado River this summer and the last few weeks has started to have to make adjustments. Users of the Colorado River have to make adjustments for the limited availability of water. And I'll wrap this up by saying there's probably a Mark Twain quote, but I guess maybe it's probably not Mark Twain. This says water is for fighting. And so we've seen a lot of fighting in water. And this reminded me of a story from when I was at the Kansas Department of Agriculture. Colorado had to actually empty a lake, Lake Bonnie. I believe it was a not too far out of Denver and one of those regions, but that was one of the things that they agreed to do based on a long, bitter legal battle. I think it went all the way to the Supreme Court with how Colorado was using the water and how Kansas didn't feel like they were getting their fair share. And after a long, lengthy water battle, they Colorado owed Kansas water and they delivered on that by taking this lake out of commission. So they released all the water out of it and they sent it downstream. And they have, of course, had to change the way that that water 
flowed from Colorado through and into Kansas. And so, again, another example, this legacy of conflict. Encourage you to listen to that episode. Feel free to share it with your friends and your colleagues. And it's just a little perspective of of history, of economics, and of agriculture for you to encourage. Of course, the first episode was about cheese and cheese consumption and U.S. Interstate Act. So encourage you to take a listen to that. That's all we have for this week. Check out our Monday premium newsletter to find out the latest and, of course, update your forecast and the uncertainty tool. Until next time, stay curious. 